This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Piki mai kake mai. I'm Alison Balance, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. The New Zealand bee industry is definitely on a roll, and William Ray is off to find out about a project that aims to help beekeepers find the best places to put their hives. It's a club day for the Wellington Beekeepers Association and about a dozen would-be apiarists are getting an up-close look at a hive, some of them for the very first time. These are drones, so you have a different size, All right, big, big eyes so they can see the queen in the mating flight. This is the club's treasurer, John Burnett. Today he's giving the group a crash course on what to look for while inspecting a hive. They, all they do is wander around eating. Yes. They're like the Western Yes. All they, have, all they need is TV and they're right. <laughs> this hive John's inspecting is one of 800,000 registered in 2017. That's a jump of more than 100,000 hives compared to the previous year. A lot of that jump has been driven by the booming value of manuka honey, and there's a lot of interest in finding ways to gather that honey more effectively. That's why scientists, beekeepers, Māori landowners and software engineers are all working together to create something called the Honey Landscape Map. The dream is that this map will reveal the honey-producing potential of native stands of vegetation all around New Zealand, both on conservation land and in private hands. That's the sort of concept we're working on at the moment. Um, but again, we are working in conjunction with a lot of the um, stakeholder and, and end-user groups to make sure that, that the product is sort of fit for their um, purpose as well. This is Gary Houliston. He's the head of the honey mapping project at Manaki Whenua. And it's not just a map of which flowers are where. Gary says the model's going to incorporate things like the weather, flowering patterns, microclimates, so it can predict the best places to put a hive in real time. Yeah, I mean, we are hoping to actually get into that kind of reactive space, if you like. Going back to some of the previous work we've done on things like mass seeding, that work is really about trying to predict events. And, and ideally for the industry, of course, um, how can we you know, determine whether we're, we're heading into a good season or not? And obviously the, the industry's come off the back of a couple of um, fairly poor seasons. And obviously particularly as, uh, as we um, get more challenges through things like climate change and so on, it, we do need the model to be, um, be responsive to some of this. Yeah, because, I mean, what's a typical year now might not be a typical <laughs> year uh, a wee way down the track. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and and that's the thing. And I mean, I think that's what the industry's seen as of late. There is there's kind of no such thing as a typical year anymore. So that's the dream, but it's still early days yet because working out how much nectar and pollen a plant can produce under different conditions is a complicated business. So could you set the scene a little bit of like where we are? Uh, we're at the University of Waikato. Yeah. Um, in the greenhouse compound. 
So there's a few uh, whole lot of plants and nettings that look like these are all natives. natives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Stevie Noe. He's a PhD student at Waikato University, and his role within the Honey Landscape Project is researching the honey-producing properties of one particularly valuable plant. We've got a whole bunch of manuka plants and the cultivar martini. I've actually never seen manuka flowering like that before. They're quite pretty, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, I think these are cultivated for their large pink flowers and abundant nectar. Stevie Noe is trying to work out all the different factors which affect the nectar and pollen yields of manuka. There are a lot of things that, that affect nectar flow and nectar chemistry. Um, soil fertility, temperature, sunlight, time of the day, where the plant is through its flowering season mm. can also affect nectar chemistry. But even in the controlled setting of a greenhouse, nature often gets in the way of Stevie's painstaking measurements. Yeah, the ants are are a bane to our nectar collection oh, efforts. Really? So they, they, if you don't control the ants, they take all the nectar. So right, okay. yeah, you've got to be diligent with control. Just as we're talking, Stevie's starting work on a new Manuka experiment. We wander out of the greenhouse across the road to a scruffy bit of land on the outskirts of the campus where he's about to plant a whole new plot of Manuka in bags full of sand. Um, the sand has no nutrients, so we'll be able to feed our specific fertiliser mixes to the plants and see what the effect of withholding nitrogen or phosphorus are on manuka growth and flowering. Obviously manuka is a major focus of the mapping project because it's so valuable to honey producers, but the final model has to include data on every major flowering plant in native bush, plus they need to account for introduced plants in that bush, not just the natives. And for every plant, they need to understand all those things Stevie was mentioning. Genetics, soil composition, sunshine requirements. To put it mildly, there's a lot of variables. Gary Hulliston again. It sort of varies on in, in sort of several different dimensions, if you like. I mean, some of it is kind of climatically driven. So even if you've got similar suites of species in different parts of the country, you will get different um, resource production from, from those areas. Um, also, of course, the, the, the different species produce very different amounts of, of uh, nectar and pollen. So actually, species like manuka uh, are generally pretty hard work for bees. They don't produce a lot of nectar uh, or pollen. And, I mean, obviously you will get bees differentially foraging on different species as well. So uh, these are all things we have to try and take into account in the model to at least give us a a good estimate of the you know the sort of number of beehives you can run per area in different parts of the country. I mean it seems like an extremely complex model to put together. I mean, you know, I mean we I think the model most people are familiar with is sort of climate models and it it almost seems like a similar scale of of thing. There's so many different interconnecting factors to take into account. I mean at Benaki Fenua over the last uh, few years we have actually had quite a lot of work already in in this sort of area so there's already been some modelling work done on nectar and pollen flow. We've also done a lot of work on sort of the climate effects of um, plant production particularly work around things like mass seeding which uh, a lot of people would have heard about. So we do have quite a track in, in some of this work. We're not sort of starting from ground zero if you like um, but absolutely get Getting to a, um, a model that will give us some predictability around uh, this is, a, is certainly a science challenge. But the scientists don't have to gather all this data themselves. Gary says beekeepers all around the country are cooperating on the project. 
because I mean some of them have data sets that go back um, 40, 50 years. And they're happy to share those with you because I mean it almost seems like the kind of thing that would be like trade secrets. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Some are and some aren't. I mean a, a lot of the ones that have been more forthcoming are, are actually probably some of the real sort of old school beekeepers, if you like, and a few of them sort of nearing retirement. So I mean their their interest has probably become a little bit more academic than uh, than commercial. So we've been fortunate to tap into a few of those people that have uh, been extremely helpful. But yeah, of course, uh, a lot of other players in the industry aren't going to to hand over a lot of their uh, what they see as their you know their trade IP, as it were. If they can pull it off, the upside is potentially enormous, particularly for people like Victor Goldsmith. I'm the general manager of Ngāchipuro Miere Limited Partnership. Miere is a Māori name for honey. We are a collective of landowners on the east coast, um, Ngāchipuro landowners. Over the last few years, Te Tiriti or Waitangi settlement deals have transferred ownership of large amounts of farmland to iwi like Victor's. But because it's been difficult for Victor and his iwi to access the finance needed to develop that land, it started to revert to native bush. The irony is that the land reverted back to scrub and people used to look at us and you know call us marginal landowners. And then as the manuka um, honey and the science that sat behind that drove the value of that particular product, you know the opportunities started to come about. Victor and Nati Perot have partnered up with Manaki Fenua, hoping the mapping project will give them a more detailed understanding of the value of their land for honey production. We've got gold sitting on our hills, which we need to look at differently, hence the reason why we're involved in the honey landscape. I use these little catch cries like, the key is the tree. You know, there's a lot of science and research being done on the honey, but not a lot of science and research being done on the actual resource itself. And so when I ask very basic science questions, around is my Monica strain different from others around the country, we had to send interns around the country to get, gather the leaf sample to do the DNA testing, and now we've proven that the East Coast is different from Northland in terms of DNA, which is quite important for me from a provenance perspective when I'm starting to look at how I might market my honey. I've also got Western science that supports that, but I've got a rich story that sits behind that in terms of our cultural association with Monica in particular. So that's one of the work streams. It's not all business, though. Victor's getting his family involved in the mapping project, both to reconnect them with the land and to get them involved in science. My daughter was the first one, you know, because she was finished university and it's a good little summer job to go, go around the country and start collecting um, Monica leaf samples and um, tagging the tree and GPSing and all that sort of stuff. So, And then uh, we had my grandnephew involved, um, had my stepson involved, had my niece involved. Uh, people think that, you know, might be a little bit of nepotism there, but it's, it's about succession planning as far as I'm concerned because there was no other people that we knew of at that time that would be able to go out and, and have, you know, have the capacity to go out and do the work. Landowners like Victor sometimes have a tricky relationship with beekeepers. Mostly it's a mutually beneficial relationship, but there are some bad actors. The greed factors come in and people placing hives on our boundaries, which is another reason why we're involved in the Honey Landscape Project to sort of manage that beekeeping pressure. Victor's hoping the Honey Landscape map will help clamp down on unscrupulous beekeepers using manuka on his land without his permission. It's called boundary riding, putting lots of hives next door to someone's property to harvest the flowers on their land. And I'm in discussion with the regional council and, and the Gisborne District Council to look at introducing potentially a bylaw once the research has been finished so that we can 
go back to some of these unethical practices and behaviours that are being displayed by people in the industry to say that you've got far too many hives on your land, you know, so why have you got 100 hives when our data, our research suggests you should only have 10? And is that a fairly critical part of getting a bylaw like that passed, is sort of having the science to underpin it, sort of saying this area of land can only support this number of hives? Yeah, I mean, that's what the council wants. Overstocking and boundary riding isn't just a problem for the commercial honey industry. Hey, get off my microphone, B. Back at the Wellington Beekeepers Association, John Burnett says it's seriously affecting hobby beekeepers. Many members have lost hives because there just isn't enough food to go around all the bees. Uh, Why Nuiamata, for example, the coast road has, uh, last I heard, 600 beehives, which is far more than the area can actually sustain. Mm. And therefore overstocking and therefore um, poaching, if you could call it that, on each other's territory. Not that that's quite the right uh, uh, wording, but yeah, it's becoming increasingly a problem. And ethics seem to have gone out the window. John's hoping the honey landscape map can help address the problem. I often try and get the uh, sure quality who look after the apiary register to tell me how many hives are in a certain area, but they're very, very uh, reluctant to divulge that sort of information because of privacy regulations. So you really don't know if you're encroaching on somebody else's territory or there are too many hives in a certain area even now. Hmm. And some sort of coordinated data uh, base would be a good idea. It'd be nice to know that uh, there are already several hundred in this particular area, therefore there's no point in me putting hives in the same area. Mm. Yeah. So if it linked it up with that with that kind of database, that might be quite handy. Yep, yep yeah. it would. Yeah, it yeah. would. Mm. The plan is to have the honey landscape map up and running within the next five years, but Gary Hulliston says there's a hell of a lot of work left to do. It's really getting some of that um, nectar and pollen data together. There's a lot of, lot of emphasis at the moment on manuka, and, and we've certainly made some um, good headway on manuka, but we are very interested in other native honey-producing species. So some of that work is, is kind of very much still still to come or, or, or just kicking off now, really. We're hoping to have um, a sort of preliminary iteration of uh, the model in the next sort of 12 months or so to test with some of the stakeholders, uh, and then we'll be looking to further refine that before the end of the project. Thanks, Gary. And a big thanks to Gary Hulliston from Manaki Whenua Landcare Research, Stevie No from Waikato University, Victor Goldsmith from Nati Poro Meri Limited Partnership, and John Burnett from the Wellington Beekeeping Association. And thanks to producer William Ray. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ on the 25th of October 2018. Online, we live at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll find all the audio for more than 13 years' worth of shows there, and each story has a written feature and photos and useful links. You can listen to our stories, or you'll also find some handy ways of listening to us as a podcast there. If you're an iPhone user, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts. If you use a Google or Android phone, then you'll want to head to Spotify or Stitcher or somewhere like that. Or download the free RNZ app, and find us there. We are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Kia pai tora. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. 
or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.